Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Man in the Post Extra Time. I'm your host, Chris. Uh, with me this week, I've got Adam. Hello. How are we? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very good, thank you very much. Uh, we are still... Well, I don't know if we're in COVID lockdown or not anymore. Um, I'm sure we will be again in a few weeks' time when the spike comes back through. Uh, so we're still doing our sort of coronavirus specials as there's no football. Uh, so... Um, normally, the last few weeks we've been doing our sort of favourite game or favourite tournament. We've gone for something a little bit different this week. We've got uh, a very own proper author uh, on. Um, I think you described once as the Indiana Jones of writing. Is that right, James Montague? Uh, yeah, it was. A bit embarrassing, but yeah. Oh, I, I mean, people can say it to me all the time, so I guess it was quite effective. That's pretty but, cool. But I mean, I would, give, I would give anything to look like Harrison Ford did when he was 32. I mean, I'd, li- I'd literally... <laughs> I'd probably kill people to, if, if, if I could look like that. Well, you know? look like Nick Faldo. That was the only problem. You don't look like that, do you? No, but he looked like... I mean, he probably was the most, like, beautiful man of the 80s, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, but, but you know, just rugged. Yeah. You know. I love him. Yeah. <laughs> I love Harrison Ford. <laughs> I reckon him, him and maybe Bruce Springsteen, if they turned up at your house with, like, a sort of toolbox and stuff, they'd, they'd know how to fix everything that was wrong, I think. I, d- I reckon I reckon Harrison Ford would do fuck all. I reckon. <laughs> I reckon, I reckon uh, Springsteen. I reckon probably be quite handy around the house. I reckon, you know, Ford would be like a like up. Will be upstairs rifling through the knicker drawer looking for. <laughs> so, you know. Fair enough. Um, and that's why I love him. <laughs> that would be you. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're also doing on this podcast. We're doing. Um, uh, our pieces of me podcast has come back, so that's your favourite eleven players, so long as you're retired. So I asked you to have a stab at that if you've got them to hand. I, I had a thought, I had a think about it, um, and it's because with these list kind of teams, you know, they always get, you know, it's like it's like Messi, Ronaldo. They're so subjective. So I just thought of like eleven players, none of whom, like, that I. I wouldn't want to choose anybody that I didn't remember playing. Mm. And they might not even be the best 11 players that retired, but just players that I remember either seeing or speaking yeah. to or having a childhood memory of. And, you know, there's a, there's a, few, there's a few interesting names that kind of popped up. So what you got? Well, well in starting goal, I've just... I've, of course, Bruce Grobelar. It's okay. a name that... It just it kind of drops off... Like, people talk about modern keepers and how the game's changed and, you know... that people kind of revere or at least appreciate goalkeeping craft a bit more say, in the modern game. But you've got to think, this is a guy who won absolutely everything with the best team in the world over over a decade. You know, not only that, you know, there was the slight taint of the, of the match fiction allegations as well. Yeah. The fact that he'd kind of come from Zimbabwe, uh, like had fought in the war, he had like an incredible backstory... Um, you know, and 
people remember him as a bit of a clown and he had you know he had a personality and he kind of played up to it on the pitch and you know but he knew how to use it to good effect european cup final in 84 yeah you know jelly legs and uh you know and, and as growing up you know everybody hated liverpool because liverpool what? were the team yeah everybody hated i mean look, if not Adam still does he's an everton fan yeah, well, I mean, half of Liverpool, but there, there you go, you know, there was, I mean, Everton were really popular at that time because Everton had a great team under Howard Kendall and West Ham had a great team, my team, and we, we had our best season. I mean, we still put out DVDs about the fact we finished third, you know, so, um, uh, you know, we, I mean, we should have won that year, really. But uh, anyway, but the point is that, you know, you've got this player who was absolutely bedrock of that team and you never really hear him, his name mentioned that much, mainly because of, of the scandal that yeah. followed, which, which, you know, in the wash seems to have been, you know, a, a tabloid sting that was that maybe made a mountain out of a molehill. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can think of, of he was a, he was a colossus during my youth. He was the only he was player a, I can think of that the only player I can think of that um, had a fag during extra time of half time in the eight, <laughs> I think it was during the eighty nine cup final I think <laughs> on the pitch. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure he did. Yeah, I'm sure I remember him walking on the pitch smoking as all the teams were in their team huddle. Uh, go on, the, only, the, only, the only player, I can, the only person I, I, I've seen that in recent years was when I met Thomas Rongan, who was then the coach of the American Samoa team, and he smoked like he smoked filterless camels, you know, and he and he was fitter than all of us and all the players that were there for this World Cup qualifier. It was, inc- it was that incredible. was a Dutch guy, wasn't it? It was a Dutch American yeah. guy. Yeah, and, he, and and they're making a movie about about that game now Hollywood movie yeah uh, Michael Fassbender's playing him in that movie but I swear like I, I I hadn't seen anybody who hadn't died prematurely smoking filterless cigarettes for about 30 <laughs> years and this guy was, and he still looks great you know but I, I can't imagine giving up quickly run through your, your next tent and then we'll, we'll, okay. we'll get on to the book uh, well so I'll quickly get into the uh, defence I was thinking Vidic and Desai. Uh, in central central um, central defence, I mean, I, I don't think I've seen two uh, central defenders just dominate teams the way they did. Yeah. Absolutely, at their at their best, they were fabulous, and and also played very well internationally as well. Roberto Carlos, who seemed to be kind of almost a platonic version of what 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 a fullback should be, you know. And and I think of a childhood memory growing up, and I always think of that it, it free kick in that tournoi. Before, oh yeah. Was it before? Yeah, the um, which still I don't know how that happened. It feels that there might have been a, a tear in the space-time continuum. Um, Lilian Taram, yeah, you know, because uh, he, I mean, he was ever present that France team. He scored his only two goals in the World Cup final. You know, activist, fantastic human being, which I always think is something that should be and maybe isn't so much kind of talked about when when players are kind of. Their, their legacy is looked at. Yeah. Um, in, in midfield, uh, Georgie Hadji, you know, the Romanian, uh, you know, midfield maestro. Yeah. You know, of course, 94 World Cup wouldn't have been 94 World Cup without him. Uh, Xavi, uh, who I interviewed when he's, he's kind of moved to Qatar now and he's uh, and he's starting his coaching career there. And, you know, that Barcelona team doesn't work without him. And his decline was the beginning of their decline. Yeah. Um, Mohamed Abutreka, Who's yeah, probably the probably the greatest single player I've ever seen live. I mean, it was it, it, such, you know. I mean, people talk about like he's the greatest African player never to have left Africa. Uh, I mean, he did play uh, in the UAE for kind of half a season, but it, never to play in Europe. And you know, he would have 
in his prime, he would have absolutely... I mean, he would have been talked about in the same way Zidane was talked about. And I, I remember seeing him at the end of his career, very nearly got to the uh, World Cup finals for the first time. Because although they dominated internationally with Egypt, with Dabu and later with Salah, the two of them had this fantastic... Uh, I mean, he was a mentor to Salah. And this, the, partly the reason why Salah becomes the player he is is because Abu Trekker took him under his wing. And really, you know, he was... Even at the, at the end of his career, I went and saw them play in the, the Club World Cup when he was captain of Al-Akhli. Uh, sorry, he wasn't captain, but he was, he was uh, you know, number 22 for Al-Akhli. And, you know, I've never seen... I think it was against Corinthians. I mean, he just absolutely dominated that. And I remember with, with the Corinthian fans, I mean, it was... You know, people didn't. Um, who was this guy? You know, but he was he was the classiest player on the pitch and uh, a good, a extremely good human being as well. And then of course, I think you've got to have Ronaldo. Uh, sorry, um, Maradona. You've got to have Maradona in yeah. there. Um, Ronaldo. Yeah. The proper Ronaldo, because I mean, I don't think you can forget that season where he scored like fifty goals. Was it for Barcelona? It was just, I mean, insane. In, in, like that combination of power and speed and grace. Um, you know, and he seemed to be a very humble kid as well. And he's not know, a terrible I mean, human being like the other one either. Well, I mean, he said he said some he said some terrible. I mean, I remember because I was in Brazil during the ninety uh, in the run up first at the Confederations Cup in two thousand and thirteen, and then in the World Cup in two thousand and fourteen. And I was in a lot of very kind of nasty protests against the World Cup. I was going there and, and covering them, and some of that turned up in my book thirty one nil. And he said some very stupid things about you know. Uh, you can't play football in a hospital, so he alienated a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of people in in Brazil. With that so he has had his moments, but as a as a player, you know, he's one of those, you know, he shone very bright. And then and then of course he, he the whole controversy around the '98 World Cup, you know, where he basically has an episode, and then comes back and then wins it in 2002, you know, with the Golden Boot, you know, wonderful comeback. And then finally, I think Alan Shearer. You know, is another player who's who doesn't quite get spoken about in that world class. But I remember seeing him. I think it was West Ham Blackburn '95, '96, '95. I think it was. I think he might have gone to Newcastle in '96. But um, I remember watching him and thinking he was he was a bastard. He was an absolute bastard, yeah. and he he absolutely bullied. I think we I think Alvin Martin went, but we had but he absolutely bullied our back line, and he was just you know he never stopped and he never. He was just powerful, skillful, quick. You know, he could do everything. He was, and it was just, it was a, it was, it was like watching a masterclass. The way he tore apart. I think it ended up being one-one. I even think Ian Dowie played in that game and might have scored. Um, so in that respect, you know, they 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 shared the spoils. Ian Dowie and Alan Alan Shearer. But he, he you know, he was, uh, you know, seeing that was a real real lesson in how to in centre forward play. Julian Dix and Thomas Repka are going to hunt you down. They are, they are. I mean, I, I always thought, you know, uh, Julian Dix should have played for England more, but I mean, he was, you know, he was quite a handful, wasn't he? So, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, you know, we could have used him at various different tournaments for his penalty taking as well. <laughs> Very underrated player, I think. Um, right, okay, let's go on to your book then. So your book is called Thirteen Twelve Ultras. What one one three one two one three one two? Um, sorry. Is it's uh well no so everybody says it's because they think it's a year but it's a uh, it's a number code that means A C A B which means all cops are bastards. Okay. So is that one step by Chris? Is that what? Are you too village for that? <laughs> we haven't got any cops here. We don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 
Don't have it on the streets of Cornwall. No. <laughs> it, it, I mean, I, I found this. The reason I called it that is because almost every place I went around the world, where you see graffiti, you'll see this one three one two. So you'll see a cab as well. Yeah. But one three one two, and it's kind of something everybody agrees with. Whatever, whether political ultras, left right ultras, uh, you know, uh, apolitical ultras, but they all are against kind of control and the police are pretty much the face of the state and state control so there's a real anti-authority anti-police kind of vibe yeah. that unites everybody and it was quite difficult to get to a kind of unified definition of what all three is you know and uh 1312 seems to be as close to any i was going to say i was going to the question i think i want to ask you is what is an ultra because that's just such an open-ended question but probably one thing i'm going to ask you is what did you think an ultra was at the start of the book and did your experiences change your mind by the end of the book as to what an I mean, ultra I had, was i had quite a good idea of what what an ultra was i mean I, it's been something that i'd never i mean I, I never really write about football to be honest i mean I, I don't i mean i've done a few match reports in my time um i quite enjoyed it because it's you know you know like a almost like a treat to do that but mainly i write about the stuff that's around the game and so from the very beginning, I was in the stands rather than in the press box. So I was with the fans, always attracted to where the loudest, most dangerous part of the stadium was. So I'd always find myself in there. So, <clears throat> so I was very aware about what ultra culture was. And that was one of the things that I, I one of the reasons why I wanted to wait a little bit and this was the time to do it, is that I'd made enough contacts, you know, within the scene. Because it's very difficult as a journalist because you're seen as as bad as the police were part of the same problem you know and so um i you know i wanted to kind of be in a position where people were you know not you know not closing every door to me and most people who write about ultras have that and i was lucky that i managed to build up enough goodwill that i could open those doors um but so yeah so i had a good idea what it was but i in a way um, when I asked almost, I asked everybody I spoke to, like, how do you define ultra? And everybody could have gave me a, a different reason or struggled to give any, any definition whatsoever. So the longer that I went on, you know, the less sure I was about what, what it, what it was. I mean, I knew that it was a, an absolute dedication to a team and to a, a lifestyle that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week to go beyond, you know? Yeah. And so that was the very literal definition of it. But once you got into it and the scene, it was much more varied and it depended where you were in the world. Um, and it, yeah, it was in the end, I found that it was almost impossible to pin down what, what, what ultra is other than, again, a feeling of wanting to belong to something and belong to a group and find a kinship and identity in that group and to be against something and to be against authority. And those two things kind of combined, I think, was the closest I've got to kind of what, what ultras are. And I suppose that's what, what changed, not changed my mind, but kind of what I learned over the period that I was researching it. Did it help being a West Ham fan? Because you mentioned in your book several times about West Ham and the ICF um, being looked upon quite fondly by ultra groups. If you told them you're a West Ham fan, did that open a few doors for the journalists that they're sort of normally quite wary of? Yeah, I mean, it, it was weird. It kind of did. And that can be traced back directly, I mean, to the ICF, of course. Uh, but um, in, in the modern era to Green Street Hooligans, um, which was, it's amazing. I mean, there isn't a book about, there isn't a chapter on, 
on England or Great Britain in this book, but English football culture is a constant theme through all of it because what what I mean, ultras come from Italy in the late 1960s, but there's also there's four. The way I looked at it, there were four major um, fan cultures that could have emerged in the 20th century. You have the Bada Brava in in Argentina, the Torcida in Brazil. You have hooliganism in the 1960s in England and and in Great Britain, and then you have ultra which you know the ultra culture which originates in italy in the late 1960s and they all kind of grow and you know as globalization increases and technology facilitates that they, they're all taking influences from each other um and so what was interesting is that i would find out how influential english football culture and english hooliganism and the violence of english hooliganism because it was seen almost like in the 70s and 80s it was seen almost like punk you know punk and hooliganism were kind of very, very like attached because these were outsiders these were people who were against control and they were spitting in the face of the authorities and that's what hooligans did as well and they saw them very much in that same kind of wheelhouse so <clears throat> yeah it was kind of uh, and now what you've had is although you know after uh, the kind of problems in the 1980s after Heisel then after Hillsborough then after Taylor Report and everything all the all the uh, the reforms that have taken place in English football, you know, there is no space really for any, you know, kind of fringe fan culture really to exist in the top level English football. But, um, you know, what you find is that through films like Green Street Hooligans, they're still, you know, people watch that like it's a documentary around the world. So whenever I went, I remember that I went to Israel and I met the La Familia, who's like a real tough group of Beitar Jerusalem. And they're, you know, they hate journalists and, they hate pretty much everybody who's not um, them. I mean, they hate Arabs. They're very racist. Um, but they found out I was a West Ham fan. They started singing West Ham Till I Die. You know, it's the only English they knew. I went to Indonesia, and the, all the guys there, like, had taken phrases from Green Street Hooligans and put it on flags, which was on the, you know, th these ultra groups. And so, yeah, although it, West Ham kind of, it weirdly kind of did open doors. You know, it was like, oh, you know, if I'd said, I don't know, if I'd said Millwall, I think it might have helped as well because a lot of people like Millwall, mm. especially in Serbia. Um, but Serbs have a very there's a there's a very strong feeling that the world has been against them for a long time. So this this idea of everyone hates us and we don't care kind of resonates quite strongly there. So you'd be surprised. In fact, they ended up going to a Millwall game just before the lockdown with uh, four Serbian friends because they just they just wanted to see Millwall. But of course, the irony of all this is that that culture doesn't exist anymore. So it is only perpetuated in films like. Green Street Hooligans and you know, and and Danny Dyer videos, but it's something that people still kind of really, really love. So how do you become an ultra then? Do you, you presumably you start as a fan of the club and you go to the the games with your dad and he sort of sits you in the nice seats at the side and then you sort of yeah. look at these guys think I want to be with them lot. But how that's do you join? Do you, do you approach them and say I want to join you or what do you do? That, that's exactly it. It's um you know almost every origin story of every ultra I spoke to was exactly that. They'd go as a young kid with their family in the east or west stand where the family sit and they would see what was going on. And the ones that wanted, the ones that became ultras were the ones that were like, I've got to be there. I were attracted to that, uh, to, to, to the to the danger and it was cool and they wanted to be part of that. And then it's a very organic process. It's not like you can phone up and get go for an interview. You have to kind of turn up and you have to turn up on the fringes because obviously the, the prime terrace real estate is behind the goal. 
that's where the capo is and that's where his lieutenants are and then the closer you are to that the you know the the more important you are to the group and so you start at the edges and you keep turning up you keep going to away games and you kind of have to prove your your metal by you know just be, being there and being there through thick and thin through rain and shine through all every game home and away and eventually you move closer and closer and closer and closer in and it's a way a kind of an organic way of weeding out people who you know are cops are informers opposition fans opposition ultras you know and so it's a scene that eventually means that everybody knows each other and you know if you're a face that is unfamiliar you're kicked out straight away because you know this is, this is a pretty good detection network to try to protect itself so yeah it's something that you kind of it's something you become over time by proving that you deserve to be there what do people make of sorry you can ask a question sorry well, I just think, like when i was especially in the uh the chapter about italy i was listening to the because i i listened to the audio book i was listening to the, the thing through and uh um when you talk about uh, the more and more you talked about it, it started to sound like something from the mafia, something from the, these people walking around are almost like Don Carleone Godfather like figures who can do any, have anything happen at the, the drop of a hat. And it does sort of have that that feel to it, I suppose. Yeah. The ties to organized crime come in later on as well. But, but it is that secret society almost is what it makes it sound like. And um, that. Yeah. It's, it's, I, mean, I, was watch, I was watching The Sopranos um, recently, and it was one of the. I was actually the first time I'd seen it all the way through, and there was a. I can't remember who who said it. It was one of Tony's capos, you know, and it was, it was something like um, uh, some police officer had come in and asked him something, and he goes, "Oh yeah, <clears> I'm from a, I'm from a marginalised Italian American subculture." And I was like, my God, that's what I've been calling ultras all this time. And so, you know, there is a certain crossover because if you're living, you know, in a culture that's like in the fringes of society that is in opposition to police control, you know, it's it's kind of the same ecosystem that a lot of organized crime finds itself in. So it's not it's not a given that it goes down that route. I mean, you'll see from the chapter about Atalanta that very much that has been rejected and so you know il Boccia, who's the kind of capo of the ultras for the club and he's he's a kind of he's a, he's a romantic folk hero almost to ultras around the world you know he's trying to keep the original calling for ultras which for him is to support your team and to and to love your football but also to help the people who's in your who are in your club who in your um society that you've created which is to help homeless people, to help like the drug addicts amongst you, to help um, build a better Bergamo and a better club, you know. So, so it's not always like that. But at the same time, you can see how, um, especially kind of at Lazio. I mean, with Diabolic, who's the leader of the Ilha Ducibola, which is kind of the far right ultras um, of the club. You know, you can see how once you're in that life, and you know, he calls him. He said like we were bastards, and once you're in that life. You know, it's. I can see how it's a very short step to then getting involved in in organised crime, and there's no doubt that he was all involved in in some of that because I mean he ends up. Um, when I interviewed him, he just got out of prison for, I think he'd been accused of, of of drug trafficking. You know, so 
and he might it was likely he was going to go back in uh, if he hadn't been he was shot dead about three months after we spoke so um so yeah there is there is a connection and you know interestingly that that's also in south america um also in poland um you know so yeah the, the two worlds often do collide it's nothing intrinsic i think with football ultras i think it's it's something that i think probably is more likely to happen on the fringes of society when you've got two two separate types of cultures that in some respects have similar values when it comes to the police and to, and to control i say because diabolic was in his 50s wasn't he so when you're an ultra and when you suddenly sort of you sort of become a teenager and you don't want to go with your dad anymore you think those guys over there look quite cool uh, presumably at some point you're going to have to get a job and get a family and uh, you know, have kids and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, if it, being an ultra is a 24-hour day job, like you say, how do you, yeah. have you got time for the other things? Or, and, well, and, and and are ultras, sorry, are, are ultras generally quite young and then they go away and have families and come back when the kids are grown up? Or No, no I, you look, it's a youth culture, right? And and the thing is you can't be ultra if if you're if you've got kids and a job and you can't go away all the time and when you stop going away uh, every week people notice and you fall down the pecking order i think what's different with diabolic and others like him is that they turned in the duchibla for instance into a business i mean they turned it into a clothing uh, like a brand clothing brand basically you know um you know their their clothing brand was selling more and making more sales than lazio's club shop I mean, they were making a huge, they had a huge income stream. They had like over a dozen shops in Rome. Um, I mean, they, they virtually controlled that club. Um, constant friction with the owners. So, yeah, he, he was older and he'd, he'd stuck around. But that's because he was essentially the CEO of, of, of a business empire. So he was coining it, you know, and then obviously he had a lot of extra curricular activities, which he ends up getting kind of arrested and goes, goes to prison for as well. So, Yes, at the lower level, it is completely... The way Diabolic even comes to power uh, within the Duchibla is that, you know, the previous kind of power on the Curva Nord, the Stadio Olimpico, was getting older and people were dropping away and they, as young bucks, saw that their opportunity to take over and that's kind of how, how it works, is this constant kind of renewal. But once you've, you know, once you've turned it into a kind of business operation and a license to print money then then it becomes something about protecting resources and you're not going to be giving that up without a fight and i know it's a big thing in south america isn't it where the um the fans are so entwined with the clubs do you i've heard sort of others talking about this and you talk about it in your book where they sort of sell tickets on behalf of the club and they sort of sell car parking spaces and all yeah. these sorts of things yeah i mean there's there's you know um La Dosa, which is the batter of Boca Juniors, and I spent a bit of time with some of the guys there, and I met, I met Rafa Dezeo. I've got a picture of him, me, me and him somewhere, and um, it was quite a terrifying experience meeting him because, I mean, it is you, you do you do see the kind of there's a there's a crack, and you see that there is an underworld underneath that, and there and and then suddenly you're in this this world, which is quite a frightening world. Uh, he was lovely to me. I mean, I have to say that, but I mean, I also know that there's you know there's been a Essentially, a kind of battle for control uh, at the he- top of Lodos that's been going on for you know over ten years, and dozens of people have been killed, and all sorts of shenanigans have been going on. But yeah, the again, and I, you know, I've always kind of underst- I've always struggled to understand how uh, what's the justification for it. And 
Rafa gave, gave quite a good justification for it, which is, you know, it was, Rafa or one other guys said it was, you know, this product, this product of football, right, which they sell and they make money off of and everybody, you know, it's the fans that kind of give it, you know, make it a product that's worth selling. You can have the best players in the world. Um, you can have the best coaches in the world. You have the best stadiums in the world. But the fans are what make this spectacle TV. So where's our cut? Where's our cut from this? You know, they they, they turn the kind of the, the, the logic on its head that they deserve something from it, that they're not just, they're not going to be suckers. They're not just going to be kind of told what to do. They're like, no, actually. And also the, the clubs have used them as well. I mean, there's plenty of stories I spoke to, um, you know, people who say, you know, the battle like Dossa were used to kind of regulate players. If a player was playing up on a contract, they'd shout bad things about him. You know, they'd, they'd accost him in a, club, in a cafe. When Maradona and Batistuta, uh, uh, yeah, uh, not Batistuta, when um, Kanija and, and uh, Maradona turned up to play there, you know, at the end of their careers, I mean, they were, you know, they were still partying, they were still on the magic dust, and you know, they they, they sent out members of the Dossa to straighten them out. If they saw them the night before a match, they threatened them, you know. So the clubs were using them as well. But this idea that the fans were, you know, absolutely integral to the product is something that I think we can see that they might be right. I don't condone their actions in what they do to make their money, but in terms of, you know, the idea that football now is worth less because it's taking place behind empty stadiums shows how important the fans are to this. And it's something that I explore a little bit in the Sweden chapter where the Swed everyone admits Swedish football isn't very good, even Swedish players. But um, they say it's the best fan experience and, you know, the, the amount of sponsorship league revenue uh, attendances have been going through the roof and they've made the absolute best of, of, of the situation they've got for a small country. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's interesting that, it's, that, they, that this happens, but I, you know, I, I, could, I could see some of the logic of where they were coming from. I mean, where, why, do, why do fans in Western Europe want to go to the Bombonera? It's because of the atmosphere, isn't it? Mm, mm. And it was incredible. I was there for a Copa Libertadores game and you know Carlos Tevez scored the winner in like the 94th minute you know in a packed bomb I mean it was under under floodlights it was it, I mean it was it was it was a genuinely incredible experience and um I mean I wasn't in uh La Plata I wasn't in the, the so the popular I wasn't in the in the, in the cheap seats because you have to pay something like they they La Dosa run these kind of like uh, adrenaline tours where you if you pay money you can go and stand next to Rafa Zaire you can go stand next to him and watch a game you know with these guys who are like probably all packing heat, you know, and you can you can go and do that if you've got the money, you can do it. I, I couldn't do that. I'm a journalist. I can't pay to do that. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's you can you can go to they they run this uh, ultra school or they used to anyway, which is which Rafa called the kind of Harvard of um, the Harvard of, of ultras around the world, and it was teaching groups from Europe who would go and meet them, and I think they paid five thousand euros for the privilege to learn how to set up a similar business in their own um, in their own country so it's it's a lucrative business to tell you where did you uh, need a change of underwear the most was it in the car park meeting him or was it in indonesia with the machetes um i would say i mean there were probably actually the scare because once you're in it and i find this a lot with a lot of my work because i often end up in in these in these situations where it's a bit dicey and once you're in it 
you feel there's a you know the adrenaline is working and it isn't until afterwards that you kind of really think fuck that was quite scary one moment that was actually scarier which probably i didn't explain as much was i was i was supposed to interview um rafa's kind of like number two and he's kind of main rival maru uh maru martin and he, he he's a guy who i mean they've they were basically burning down their their respective mothers' houses. That's how bad, like the, the, this conflict was. I mean, people were getting shot. Mauro was even shot. I mean, he almost died in hospital because of one of uh, you know they were turning up at stadiums fighting each other, and they've got they've got kind of a you know a, a, a peace like an uneasy peace at the moment. But we were supposed to meet him, and then we found out from one one guy from the other side that where we were supposed to meet him was like. It was probably a trap to God knows what, you know, could be beat us up, could be to rob us, could be to kill us. We don't know that. I, I shit myself then. I was like, OK, I, I can't do that. I can't. Once you're in, once you're saying, OK, you're going to let's go. We're meeting Rafa. I can't then say no. Like you're, you're taken away in it in that moment. But then on the phone and I'm sitting there thinking it. And that was a, that was a really scary moment. And of course, Indonesia, I mean, I, I genuinely thought. I might die in that moment because you know I'm getting chased by these group, just group of machete wielding ultras, you know. So that was that was pretty scary. But yeah, those two moments, pretty much. Yeah, I need I needed new pants afterwards, and I couldn't change my pants after the Indonesia thing because I still had a 24 hour bloody coach journey to get to the match. So <laughs> you were doing pleasant to see next thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I could. I mean, there's a guy next to me asleep who'd been drinking Intasadi, which is this kind of like hooch that that. Uh, Indonesian's drink, which is a bit like Buckfast, and he got drunk and he was falling asleep on my shoulder, just retching for like twenty hours. So. That, I was reading about that, and the, the, the sort of bus smelling of tobacco. That bus must have stank by the time you sort of trundled yeah, off at the end. It did, but luckily, I guess. I mean, you know, if somebody had come from the outside in, then it would have been a terrible smell. But I mean, I'd, I'd got used to it at that point. So yeah. But there was never a point where you were sort of, I mean, I, I, the way you were reading it, there was a sort of, because um, I got the audio book as well, and you, when you were waiting in the car park to meet, um, you have to figure, is it Rafa? I can't remember his Rafa name. Dezeo, Rafa yeah, Dezeo, yeah. Rafa yeah. so Dezeo. I finished watching Narcos last night, so I got all these Spanish pronouncing names in my head. So, um, yeah, so you were sort of, I got the impression you were sort of waiting in the dark meeting him, and you sort of got the impression from the way you were reading that, that you were sort of questioning life choices at that point. You were sort of sounding very sort of... Um, yeah, yeah, it's a foreboding about you. So something might happen. Yeah, I mean, there was there's been there was a lot of that when I was writing it, um, but mainly because, you know, when I read, when I wrote my first book, uh, when Friday comes, there were quite a few, there were quite a few kind of hairy moments. I mean, you you you're in Syria, you're in Gaza, you're in the West Bank, you know, um, Iraq, Iran, Yemen. You know, there were loads of kind of like. I was young, I was in my 20s and, you know, you're a bit more brash, a bit more foolhardy, more, you know, taking more risks. 31-0, a little bit similar as well. And then the thing that changed is when I was writing Billionaires Club, I had a child. So, you know, suddenly you're just thinking a lot more about, like, I mean, this could this could go really wrong, you know. You know, and I think I even mentioned it at the end with the Indonesia section, I even write that imagine my daughter having to hear this you know it's that i'm not out there like i'm not like a war medic or you know a soldier fighting for you know whatever cause i'm fighting for i mean i'm i'm, I'm a football journalist writing about ultras and i get hacked to death in indonesia you know it's not something that that seemed to be worth it at that moment i mean i'm glad i mean, i'm glad i got back and wrote it and so it was worth it but yeah i mean it, it, there were a few moments where i did question whether 
whether taking that amount of risk and that amount of um, like getting yourself that embedded into into the story, which is something that I've always done, mm. whether it was really worth it. Uh, you know, in hindsight, it was, but at the time, it was touch and go. Um, when you talk about uh, different groups of ultras, so you have obviously you have different classes of ultras, um, but different ultra groups have got different politics. So you talk about the far right of the Lazio fans. Um, that implies that every Lazio fan that wants to get involved with that sort of thing is a far-right fascist. I mean, that can't be true if you've got a group of thousands of people together. They must have sort of different no, political beliefs. There, there is. I mean, I would say that, you know, the irreducible is, is, you know, out-and-out, out-and-out neo-fascist. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt about it. Um, and that is the most dominant, or was the most dominant voice. I mean, now it's apparently disbanded and, and you know, after the death of uh, Fabrizio Piccitelli, a diabolic. I mean, I did meet, I mean, I met some really interesting people. I met a couple of left-wing ultras. I met a guy who's a publisher, uh, lovely guy, uh, progressive politics, you know, who's mad Lazio fans. So of course you have Lazio fans who, who don't subscribe to the politics. But in terms of the terrorist culture, historically, then um, it has always been on on the right. And then Ilya Tuchibla, of course, takes it to a different level. But there's a there's something else in Italy, which is, you know, in Britain, we've never really had the that kind of like uh, reverential fascism of, se of Second World War figures. Whereas in Italy, you still there is still a kind of large respect, or there's a, a large constituency that respects Mussolini, and um, still kind of adhere to his, to some of his fascist ideology. I mean, of course, you know, fascism was born in Italy in terms of kind of it being called that, and in terms of you know the Roman salute, which then Hitler took, and um, so he was in many respects, you know, you know, an integral figure in in the rise of fascism. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that that is still a uh, a politically um, acceptable choice for people to make. Whereas in Britain, if you told people that you love Mussolini, I mean, you'd be ostracised. Yeah, you know. So yeah, it's uh, there is an identity on the on the terraces. It doesn't mean everyone's like that, but there is, you know. I think, uh, you know, I think you can say that, you know, quite. It's it's quite it's quite a common political identity that you find there. Obviously, you can't correct these people. Um, you know, if someone says something, you know, the yeah, Auschwitz is your ovens and the, and that sort of tifo, and when people come in out with sort of things like that, obviously you're one man in a sort of um, with a load of other people. You can't correct them, but do you ever sort of find yourself wincing or biting your tongue or? Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, I tried to, you know, I realised that I was asking questions. I mean, I did ask questions about that and challenge uh, Diabolic about it. But I, I also knew if I went in and made that the absolute kind of bedrock of the interview, I mean, I'd be out of my ear yeah. within a minute. So it was about you, trying to use a kind of interview technique that, that got the history and the story and the colour, but at the same time... You know, asking how you've got to those beliefs and why, why, why you've got to those beliefs, and so, you know, there were. I mean, I spent a lot of time around people who, you know, were pretty much Nazis, and it was, you know, it, that was it was it was very difficult at times. I mean, especially in Ukraine, you know, the guy I'm interviewing has got, you know, swastika tattoos everywhere. You know, there's no there's no there's no uh, corridor of uncertainty about where he stands, I suppose. But um, it was it was a it was a moral issue that. I had all the way through about how do you speak to and follow uh, extremists 
without giving them a platform necessarily. And it was something I really, I not struggled with, but I, I, it's a question that I had, I had with me at, at all times. And um, in the end, I, I, I was in two minds because my publisher was a bit worried that, um, you know, that, you know, there's lots of really extreme voices in it. And I, and I, um, I contacted Cass Muda, who's a, you know, fantastic, uh, he's columnist for the Guardian, but a fantastic academic who writes about the far right and the radical right in Europe and beyond. And so I sent it to him and, and, you know, I wanted him, he, he loves football as well. So I wanted him to see what he thought. And I also wanted to see whether I had, covered it correctly and and he and he was he was pretty effusive that i had so so yeah that was a big weight off my mind but it was something i was always worried about yeah no i can imagine sorry um adam's <laughs> silhouetted in the background here so i can't get to see if he's trying to say something and where i'm dominating so <laughs> i can see his te- i can see, see his teeth. teeth yeah that's it so, <laughs> so he's been washing did his teeth have... pretty well it's like rossing with friends <laughs> did you ever find yourself in any sort of difficult compromising situations like that because I what came to mind when you hear about a couple of situations it made me think of a a scene in a Louis Farou documentary where he's seeing white nationalists and they want to they ask him if he's Jewish and he refuses to answer the question um, and I wondered if you ever found yourself in any anything sort of similar to that where people are desperately trying to uh, get to the core of your beliefs to, and just <sighs> And that, that whether you're worried, whether you ever worried about that being a barrier stopping you get to the level you needed to get the access. Well, I one of the things that I I found, and, and this is one of the reasons why I managed to speak to quite a few people. I, I, I later found out was that I'd written this book, The Billionaires Club, uh, which we spoke this last time we spoke, right? Um, and in it, you know, it's a kind of like, I mean, it's a pretty strident attack on the super rich and what they're doing, not just to football but to the world, and one of the things that kind of i mean martino who i mean i'm sure you watched copper 90 um martino resi who's uh, he's basically the guy who who helped me especially in italy in, in kind of accessing he's got fantastic contacts in the scene and you know this is he you know the way he said like we want to do this interview it's not like a tabloid journalist it's a ethnographic and the last book he wrote was this and that was it was kind of talk it was kind of talking their language in a way because you know those issues are issues that you know that preoccupy the far right i mean i i even mentioned that a lot with ukraine is that there were i mean these guys who clearly were on the spectrum um but they were kind of restyling themselves as activists um against oligarch control uh corruption kind of issues which are kind of cross political issues i mean there's across there's across the political spectrum so um yeah that's the first thing i would say is that that, that that that's kind of got got me in the room so so i never really got they never really could have like asked me like oh yeah like do, like do you hate jews or anything like that they never really could have drilled down into that and i never really heard i mean they did they did, they did actually say some quite racist things quite anti-Semitic things but then you know, you, you ask them about that, like, well, you know, that, that isn't that anti-Semitic? And then they'll be like, well, no, because, you know, and they'll, and they'll give an answer. And again, you mentioned Louis Theroux, uh, and John Ronson is another person who's very influential for me growing up, was that, you know, you, you let them talk, and often, you know, you give people enough rope, and, you know, they, they do it to themselves, and that's that's kind of the because I always remember, like, with, with Louis Theroux in particular, like, he met, I think it was one of the New World Order kind of apocalypse preppers. 
and he, he ended up quite liking them, you know, and it was very clear that they they had a rapport. You know, they had the, he had these crazy ideas, but you know, he was a family man and you know, there was there was some there was some like rapport. And you know, I have to say that a lot, a lot of the guys I met, some of them, you know, seemed quite nice, you know. I mean, of course they had kind of horrific views. That doesn't mean that uh, people aren't human that hold those views. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an extremely complicated world. And you, you, I think I write about this. I mean, you want to write about it as it is and not as it how you how, how you want it to be. And so, so yeah, I tried to take that kind of approach with it. And I mean, there's I write about this in at the end when I when I say goodbye to Diabolic, and it's been, it's been a pretty intense two hour interview. And we say goodbye. And like his bodyguard gives me a hug, you know, and we we end up going to a cafe and Martino and I are just so excited because we've talked to Diabolic. He's this major figure in the scene and this would be excellent for the book. And it wasn't until later that night we went out for drinks with his friend in like a Rome bar. Like we had a spritz, you know, uh, I didn't have an open collared shirt or anything, but, um, but, you know, other people did no socks on that kind of thing. And we're drinking there, and and we're explaining what happened. And this guy just says, like, "Well, he's won, isn't he? He's won. He's look at look at you. It's like it's like you've met a pop star, you know." And then it, it was like screeched to a halt. And I was like, "Yeah, you're right. You know, I've 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 lost sight in that moment of the excitement of the story, as opposed to the you know quite horrific things he was telling me during the interview." And so I was always questioning myself and always prepared prepared for that kind of criticism i don't even heard of you before um before right before you approached them um having read your books before and has any of them come to you afterwards and, and sort of spoke to you about what you've written about them in this book um no, not really i mean you know just just the fact that the billionaires come had been written and um so that was kind of like okay then he's a different kind of yeah writer than what they're, what they're used, usually used to when it comes dealing with journalists um uh, come back, yeah. I had, I mean, Mikkel, the Swedish guy, who's a very important figure in the book. I mean, he loved it. Um, so I've, I'm sending out books now. I, I'm waiting for books to come back before I can. I mean, a lot of them have picked up the books and they've read them, they've told me they're reading them, and they're like, um, a lot of people in the scene, um, because I was, I was worried that they would have thought that you know, this was. You never talk to a journalist. This is ridiculous. Like, why are you doing this? But it's it's mostly to the people in the sea. It's mostly been quite positive um, mm. because I think it it shows that there is. I mean, obviously, I I mean, I've, I have a lot of respect for the scene as well as the good parts and the bad parts as well. Um, in terms of, like, I mean, I've got respect for the good parts, and obviously, I'm very critical of the bad parts. Uh, but yeah, it's been mostly. I'm, I, but there's a few other people I'm still waiting to hear from. That I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm a little worried what they might think, you know. And uh, when you talk about this, so the the scene as a whole, how important? I know that this is difficult to uh, to generalise when you talk about the different movements around the world, but how important actually is football to the scene? Well, this is I mean, this is something that I was, you know, I I actually asked this as well as asking whether what is ultra. Like the other thing was like, do you still love football? And you know, it's clear football is absolutely integral to the scene when it comes to the rank and file. Absolutely. We talked to somebody like Diabolic and then it was like, uh, you know, I couldn't tell you a name of a player. So there was something that once you got into the, you know, the criminal element of it, it wasn't really about football. It was about money. It was about power. It was about belonging. It was about a gang. It was about a group of people that had that shared kind of similar uh, values. 
but you know when it came to the vast majority of ultras it was it was about football and it was about the scene you know and this is the thing we talk about the scene you know it's not just about supporting your team it's about um living by the rules of the subculture very distinctive subculture um which you know that there are certain there are certain rules and norms within that and so that was that was almost as important as the team but yeah football was absolutely essential to for most people but i was surprised about the amount of people at the very top who you know could take it or leave it are there any yeah, ex-players well, I... that are um ultra... sorry Adam, are there any ex-players that are ultras did you come across i mean I mean, famously, you've got Paolo Di Canio. I mean, you know, he was part of the the Chibli, you know, um, talked kind of movingly about meeting Diabolic uh, yeah. back in the day. Oh, no, sorry. So, I mean, I mean post-playing career, sorry. Not really that I can think of. I mean, one of the interesting things is that um, there are players that have kind of connections, you know, to the terraces, but usually it's within the lower, lower leagues and in the past. Because now, I mean, certainly in like the top leagues, players are basically the super rich. And they've got more in common with billionaire owners than with the fans. So look what happened in Germany recently. And German football is about to begin. I know this is probably going to go out next week. Is it going out next week? Yeah. Um, tomorrow. So you've got your German football uh, coming back. And, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, the big issue before then was uh, Dietmar Hopp, the owner of Hoffenheim, being criticised by ultra groups because... They, they hate him because he's seen as somebody who's got around the 50 plus one issue, which is like a religion to ultras over there. Um, and so, you know, the the bite where they played Bayern Munich, Hoffenheim played Bayern Munich, and Bayern Munich fans were ultras was charity against Hop. I mean, some of it was quite distasteful, but, you know, they, you know, they started playing amongst themselves. They showed support for the owner over the support of the fans. And whatever you say about how the ultras express themselves, the issue at the core that they're campaigning against is quite a complex, important issue, which is pres- preserving a kind of a, a method of ownership that keeps football uh, beholden to supporters and supporter interests, which is much more preferable to to the interests of billionaires. So yeah, you, it's 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 you're not seeing many going back into the going back into the curve after after they're finishing the game. But that that works right in Germany because those ultra groups will work as a collective uh, organized as a uh, as a almost as a not a league collective but they'll work together right uh, whereas which is something that would never happen in england when you have the tribalism you have here when people will argue over whose shirt sponsor is the most inappropriate and point score in every single well, way I mean, you may be i mean i think you know they have they've got tribalism in in German football, make no mistake about that. Um, you know, there's, there's just, you know, and we've, we've had it a little bit with the supporters, don't like supporters ownership groups, and you know, so there is some kind of grassroots movement. It's just that there is no space for it to to exist in in English football. There's no, I mean, every time you see ultras trying to set up in English football, and made, you know, the owners don't give a shit. They don't have to give a shit because there's no space where they have any power in because the power's been completely taken away from the fans. They're just, they're consumers. And every other league in the world that has ultras in it and want to curb their powers look to England as a way, like, that's what we should do. That's what we should do here. Palace have Uh, tried it a little bit, haven't they? Mm -hmm. Sorry, Palace have tried it a little bit, haven't they? Yeah, Palace have tried it, but, you know, they're... That's essentially a a glorified singing section, though, isn't it? It is, and if you think that, like, you know... 
that this is something that the club that it would be beneficial to the club. Like if you if, if you open the smoke bomb or pyro in a, in an English Premier League stadium, you know you'd, you'd be shot. It's it's like you know it's just you just do not have the space to you know to, to push against any kind of authority in a football stadium. Like what banners you bring in? I mean, I know that it's regulated in Italy now, but that's mainly to stop because of the racist stuff. But like any any kind of political message banner is pretty much banned from will be banned from from a, from a Premier League stadium. Um, it's nuts. It's just it just can't it can't exist. And so yeah, until that changes, that's why you're seeing it, ultras kind of existing much more in kind of non-league football in 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 the lower tiers because there is the space for it to exist. Or at Celtic. Where there is again the, the, the kind of uh, where there is fan power still kind of has a voice there. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not I'm not necessarily. I don't think it's about the difference between the tribalism. I think it's just a difference in the fact that you know you've got a situation where English fans just just don't have they can't get a foothold at all in the top level top few levels of English football to to build a culture like this and to build a kind of understanding that fans actually are. Are, have power. They actually could. They could have power if they put their minds to it, and they and they come together on it. So, what do you think? Were, that you did... ever, were you ever tempted to at any point to write a chapter about English football in that regard? I know that there's never been a ultra movement, but like you said, there's yeah. so many connections and sort of yeah. How, how far away is the hooligan movement from well, the original? Um, plan for the book was I was going to go around the world, Indonesia. It was it was because it, it's chronological, right? Because ultras kind of it, they emerge from Italy in the late sixties, but before then you have the Bada in in Argentina from the nineteen twenties onwards, and you have the Torcida from the nineteen forties in Brazil. So then chronologically, ultras then spread out the Balkans, Greece, and then uh, Southern Europe, and then Northern Europe, fall of communism, Eastern Europe, and then North Africa and Asia. And then I wanted to go full circle, and I wanted to have a postscript originally that was uh, back in England, and it it was going to be around you know what was happening with the kind of football lads alliance, uh, because a lot of guys involved in that were kind of talking about bringing a kind of a Lazio style ultras group to West Ham, you know, um, and or or either start going somewhere like Clapton or even. You know the Green Brigade in Celtic, and explaining like almost full circle, like this is the birth of a new movement in you know the, in the country of hooligans, and and that I thought was be a great way to kind of finish the book. But it was in the end, it was like four hundred pages, um, and I already had to drop chapters on Bulgaria and Romania, and also you know by the end of the travel for this book, which was insane, I felt a little bit like. Mr. Creosote in the meaning of life, you know, like one more wapathy min, you know, blah, blah, and then he explodes. And I felt like if I went to one more country to do one more fucking chapter, I'd be Mr. Creosote and I'd explode. So <laughs> I thought, you know, maybe I'd, I'll, in, I'll leave it Indonesia and maybe that's a, a, something I can explore in the next book. How does that make you feel though when you go to somewhere like Bulgaria and then you can't fit it into, into your book? It must be quite frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was. I mean, in the end, I didn't go to Bulgaria. I read a lot around it and had some contacts, and I was going to go there, and I didn't in the end. I mean, Romania, I I did do quite a bit of research, and I went there. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is frustrating, but it was also 
you know, I mean, it, it was for the best, I think, for the, in terms of the narrative structure of the book. And I mean, I'm hoping to put together, I mean, I've, I recorded all of this on my Zoom. So, I, you know, I've got it all kind of ready to put together for a podcast, which we've been talking about doing. So maybe I'll, I'll add the Romania chapter, the, the non-chapter there, or add it to a later edition. Or even if there's a Romanian edition, I could, I could write the chapter. So so these things never die. They'll, they'll always see the light of day. That's good. Did you get surprised in America? Because the league itself being 24 years old this year, um, you know, with the with the sort of ultra culture there, even clubs like New York City FC, there's um, there's a guy I follow on Twitter uh, who is a big New York City FC fan, and he doesn't like their ultras because they're very sort of far right. So, but New York City is quite a sort of new team. It doesn't take long for these cultures to pop up and if you look at the canadian premier league and uh, adam's favorite the yeah. a league in australia you get you've got sort yeah. of ultra cultures there popping up i mean there's yeah, the it, accusation I, of plasticness isn't there of course and that's why i wanted to go there i mean i wanted to see how you build an ultra culture from scratch right because yeah. i mean the whole thing about it is that it has roots and it's built upon generation to generation of this of this uh you know youth taking over from the old and this is kind of generational kind of cycle but then of course it obviously has to start from somewhere and you know mls is is, is a much more business orientated league and you know when i went to lafc a new club that had set up the 3252 which is kind of like based on the unity of borussia dortmund a kind of uh umbrella organization for lots of different subgroups um, you know, I knew that it was something interesting, but what was I was blown away by it, to be honest, because one of the most interesting things about especially L.A. is that, I mean, people are plastic, American football culture is soccer culture is plastic, but you go to L.A. and you realise that, you know, it's always been a soccer city. You know, it's got a huge Latinx uh, kind of influence, um, not just, uh, you know, Latinx, but also kind of Asia, Persian um, you know, there's a huge amount of uh, kind of African influence there as well, and you know, it's, it's people who have always loved football, generationally have loved football. They just haven't poured that love into necessarily U.S. soccer, uh, which is a, which is a problem that um, the U.S. national team has often had when it's played home internationals in America, and they have to usually work out where to go because if they play in Costa Rica and they end up in a city that's got a huge Costa Rican population they're usually the away it's almost like they're they're the away team and not the home team that's, so that's why they play in Denver on top of a mountain exactly you know <laughs> and so it, it's um so for me going there it was like this new football club has turned up and yeah there were certain corporate aspects to it i mean you know they had you know league approved pyro for instance, you know, uh, which made me laugh. But they're, uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, speaking to people, these are people who, from generations of family, families had generations of, of supporting the soccer team, you know, and this is the first time they'd found something they could fall in love with in downtown LA. And they never really felt any kinship with Galaxy because that's a slightly bit, bit away from downtown. Uh, but they built this very progressive fan culture. And, you know, I mean, New York FC is a bit of a different. There is a kind of proud boys uh, influence there, uh, but there's you know then you go to kind of New York Cosmos and you've got was it the Brigada seventy one and you've got the you know you know it's it's it, if anything supporter culture in the US is a very progressive uh, overall a very progressive culture, and so I mean when I was at LAFC they had a Pride event and so it was like they had their tifo was Freddie Mercury, you know which was which was mad the first time I'd seen that and they had women in the capo cages and so yeah it's it, they've built something that's a little bit like 
Germany in terms of, okay, you can't get around the fact that we are a modern, uh, advanced nation, you know, richest on earth. And so the football is obviously going to be in some way reflective of that. But having something that wasn't plastic, that was actually something that I thought, you know, this is how you meld modern commercialism with with a fan culture. Um, and it's something that I wish the Premier League had done and take take notes of because it was much more fun watching LAFC play and the whole match day experience than, than a Premier League game I've been to in at least 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it's got to start somewhere. I was watching the Canadian Premier League last year in its, its inaugural season, but there, even there, you were still having sort of Tifo and flags and you've got to get it from somewhere, I suppose, haven't you? Um, you said about the women in Los Angeles and the Lazio Ultras had their sort of ban on women attending, didn't they? Did you come across many women in in them in these ultra groups? I mean, I, you know, you do come across uh, quite a few women. I mean, I, I was always surprised at how many women were involved in the Akhlawi, which was the, the ultras group of Al-Akhli, the uh, Egyptian, kind of, the greatest team in Africa, but like, you know, uh, the biggest team in, in Egypt. Uh, so there are always women, but they're always kind of, they, you know, in the background. They were never kind of the, the fighting fist of the of the ultras. Um, until I, I mean, I, I, Babelsberg in Germany, there were a lot of women activists involved um, with that. And in German football, a lot of women are involved trying to kind of like bring down the last bastion of, you know, they've dealt with, or not dealt with, but they've at least started campaigns about racism and homophobia. And sexism in football is kind of seen as the, you know, the last real big um, issue that needs to be dealt with that hasn't been dealt with before. So, yeah, there were there were women, but there, you know, I often found as well when because it, it's such a collective tribal, uh, masculine, violent thing that um, it wasn't until those things were stripped out of of the terrorist culture that women were really playing leading roles. And I, you know, to be honest. The US was the number one place that I saw for that. Yeah. Adam, you were on the yellow wall recently, weren't you? Yeah. That was scary. Where did I, you uh, go, sir? Yellow wall? I, yeah. Okay. Um, I took my uh, I took my little brother for his 21st birthday. Um, and, yeah, that's a complete... Like you say, it's a completely different experience. Sort of... Uh, we, we got there nice and early, rocked up, but um, even then, sort of... That place was is rammed an hour yeah. before kickoff and we'd walked in sort of shuffled in sort of found a space and then got told in german that that was the wrong space and that was someone else's and to to move along until we were finally uh, like you probably say on the outskirts enough that we we're in an acceptable position so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and that, yeah. It, must be, it must be difficult for them because like you say the, they've got they're trying to they're trying to fight this commercialism but dortmund is a club that almost has its own tourist industry so it does how, how do you marry those two things well i think they've done it pretty well i mean you know uh, the, uh, you know which is that you make the match day experience one that is completely fan centric but also that when there are concerns you know the fans are listened to and that's that's because the ownership model that they've got purely because the ownership model 50 plus one um, I mean, Borussia Dortmund is slightly different in that it kind of floated and you know, had a disastrous uh, uh, time on the stock market. But I mean, in terms of German football in general, it's you know, I wish I wish we had that. I wish we had that. Um, and I think if there was a kind of massive correction in 
um, football because of COVID and because of uh, you know TV rights and it not being able to get back to normal, that that's something that we should demand that English football should have in future. Um, you know, because it's it has made German football, um, you know, a, a, a power in Europe. That's that, I mean, of course, you could say that Bayern Munich, um, you know, enjoy the lion's share of success there, and I think that's true. But in terms of in terms of the everyday experience for fans, then you know, there, there's just there's just nothing like it. I mean, just Sweden actually, I'd say, uh, Sweden is very much like it, and they have a fifty plus one model too, and it's just better. It's just it's just much much better. And if and if if you care at all about what the experience is for the people in the stadium, and football is is a, is a sport now which cares less and less about that because TV rights, um, what people think, you know, often in in China or the US matters more than what what the fans think. Um, but you know, German football still has that. I mean, there's a lot of opposition to the way German football is organised, and like we mentioned with Dietmar Hopp and also with RB Leipzig and you know, Bayern Munich would like to get rid of 50 plus one as well, and they complain that we can't compete with oligarchs. But I mean, we've got to take the oligarchs out of the game. Not, not, not get rid of fifty plus one. It's funny that you. Uh, it's funny that that you draw that line, and but the English football is very much seen as this global success because of the because of the way it sells its atmosphere. But do you think? Oh, it's a lie. I, I mean, it's a, I don't think it is. Football stadiums is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but... But it's the fact that it's the fact that uh, the reason Premier League football is so successful is because of the way it's packaged and sold. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the, it's the full stadiums and it's yeah, yeah. the reason the atmosphere is terrible. Is the atmosphere comes in any Premier League grounds. You can go to like as you know, Chris. I go to the Emirates semi regularly down the road, twenty minutes, and it's a sixty thousand seat stadium with atmosphere made by two thousand away fans. But it is sold on that, and it is that. That's and but the comparison is that you have these, these um these curvas in Italy, but the tele- televisually you've got empty seats everywhere. Same as in Spain. Well, exactly, and and that's that's one of the um you know and what you often find, which is most um, extremely frustrating about, is that if you see the eye dents on Italian football, you know it's still they're still showing that that's what Italian football looks like, like the flares, the choreography smoke um you know capo's leading this you know like this passion but you know italian ultra scene has, has virtually been destroyed because of because of laws that have that have killed it you know the defeaty has been brought in you know banning orders i mean uh, i mean another reason why i mean so many people I, I ended up going to the italian cup final and uh i had to go because i hadn't gone to a football match up to that point i've been going to italy i think it was my fifth trip to italy and hadn't been because everybody I was interviewing had been banned from the stadium. <laughs> you know, so it was, um, yeah, it, it, it's uh, you know, it, it's a myth. Um, European football, if you know, in, in, apart from like, the very big games or games that matter in terms of like you know, say a cup final or something like that, um, that th- th- these have got great atmosphere. They're not. If you want great atmosphere, go to Morocco and go and watch Roger Casablanca. You know, that's 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 an atmosphere. You know, go to even even go watch LAFC on a home game. You know, against against Galaxy, that's an atmosphere. You know, go go. I mean, you know, ultras have been outlawed in in uh, in Egypt now, so there's no fans there. You, you get ninety thousand people in the Cairo International Stadium for a big game against Zamalek. 
you know that's that's been destroyed so it's it's a culture that's under attack and it's being kind of legislated out of existence in many respects but where it's where it is growing and where it's finding new a new kind of foothold um you know it's adapting to, to the 21st century indonesia another another case in point you know my favorite bit of the book is when you were in morocco and you you wrote down your telephone number for that policeman and then all the ultras <laughs> said i'm not calling you <laughs> you're you blacklisted yeah, I, I, I was absolutely ghosted by all of them you know? and i thought that was important because um, one of the big, one of the questions I get asked by everybody for the book is like, how did you get access to, to speaking to, to these people? And you know, um, you know, it was a lot of hard work to do that. I mean, I pulled in a lot of favors, and uh, but you know, there was a lot of fat chapters that I couldn't do because they just said no. You know, well, you're a journalist, of course not. So, you know, this was just the tip of the iceberg, and, and I, I couldn't write every story about who said no. But I thought that Morocco, you know, I've taken quite a long trip to get there, so I thought this is. I've got to tell this story about, uh, you know, about the time I didn't get to speak to anybody and why and how and how. And also, I, I'd hoped it would make people appreciate, you know, the how tenuous it was. You know, often I was flying to a country to meet somebody and I had no idea whether I'd meet them or not. Um, and, that, kinda, and that was what didn't work I out. I got that sense just from the uh, the story of the, the bus trip in Germany when you were ostracized to the front and yeah, everyone to the back, yeah. no one talked to them. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, I was, and then I just, I just said stop the bus, and I got out, and I, I walked down the highway till I found, till I found the train station, and and then I was somewhere outside Leipzig, I think, and yeah, I was, I was pretty, I can't, I, I'd be interested to hear what they think <laughs> about this, about how I kind of like uh, told the story of them. I mean, you know, a lot of people say actually, you know, that's that's the rules, that's ultra, that's the scene, right? That's how you got to, you know, you can't have journalists there. They did the right thing. I just, I just, I don't know. I expected after spending a lot of time around kind of like pretty right wing people that these guys would be a bit more, I don't know, open to the idea of a kind of foreigner being around them. But um, rules are rules. Yeah, it turned out they, they, they rules are rules, and they just they didn't want me anywhere near them. Yeah. Um. Two things. Then we're going to sort of wrap this up in a second because we often get told off for our podcast going on for too long. Um. So. <sighs> You a couple of places you didn't cover. You didn't sort of cover sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the Orient, um, maybe sort of Caribbean, Central America. Are they sort of have they got ultra cultures that are less known about, but still just as um, passionate, or is it not sort of caught on there? When you mean sub-Saharan Africa, what do you mean, like Mali? No, I mean maybe if you draw a line, sort of. Central African Republic, South Sudan, down. So you sort of go Tanzania, Angola, Zambia. You know, um... I, I would have, I would have loved to have done uh, on Sudan. Sudan yeah. was really on my list of countries. So I made a big list of countries, and it was just, it was just, it was too difficult, um, too much travel. Um, so uh, Mexico, Mexico, Colombia, the countries I wish I had done a chapter on basically uh, Sudan, uh, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Russia. And then when you got to kind of, I mean, Israel, but I mean, again, it was a, it was a country that I covered a lot in When Friday Comes and the ultra scene as well, which I've written a lot about the ultra scene there. So I've got a really good ultra scene in, in Israel. Um, and then in terms of kind of Asia, I mean, the, I mean, Japan and Malaysia, China to a lesser extent, but I thought Indonesia was, you know, I mean, it's obviously a very big, diverse place, but, um, you know, I thought Indonesia would, would be enough. But, yeah, in terms of, like, you know, important places I wish I'd spent a bit more time in. Again, Russia was a... I went to Russia. 
um, and I had like a month in Russia, and I turned up there before the World Cup, thinking I can I can go and pick some ultras, and then found out that all the ultras had been sent packing <laughs> uh, to their dashes because um, you know Putin didn't want them making any trouble when when the world was watching. So um, so I didn't speak to anybody when I was there, so I just went to the World Cup instead. Well, that's all right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I mean, it wasn't bad. I mean, I you know did a couple of stories. I, mean, I was at the, I was at the Switzerland Serbia game. I did a story for the New York Times about that. You know, and, well, that was a quite uh, affair, wasn't it? It was quite. It was, it was, <laughs> uneventful. Yeah. Uneventful. Uh, what's I next? My, 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 my favorite part of that match was there was a guy Brazilian television who was uh, who thought that. Uh, when Jacka did the kind of eagle hand gesture, because I, I've been covering Kosovo for years, I knew exactly what this was, you know. And because one time, one one drunk Albanian guy tried to make me do it uh, on camera, and I was like, "Man, I can't do it. I mean, I can't be doing that. It's like a nationalist symbol." And he got really angry. And I thought I was going to get into a fight with him. And so I knew exactly what this was. And uh, so this Brazilian TV guy thought it was the Doves of Peace, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. You know, he just got got it completely wrong. And um, and what's next? What are you working on next for books or for? God knows. Uh, I've got no idea. I don't even know if I could even do a book like this again. I don't even know if the world is going to allow me to do a book like this again because I got a feeling that travel is going to be almost impossible. I mean, this book was, you know, the last six months in particular. I mean, and I I went to four continents, and I, I just got a feeling that that kind of travel, that kind of freedom that I've had, is going to be gone. Yeah, and so I mean, I'd, I was already thinking. I mean, I mentioned it earlier. You know, I've got a daughter, and I've been. I mean, I've had so many scrapes. I feel like I've, I've kind of, you know, one day I'm not going to be so lucky, and maybe I should quit where I'm ahead. I mean, this is my fourth book, so, so yeah, I'm just I'm thinking about what to do next, and you know, I just want to I just want to get to Istanbul. That's my that's my main <laughs> that's my main kind of like aim right now. I've got the feeling reading uh, oh sorry I've got the audio books and listening to this I've read all your other books until now this is probably the most James Montague of all the books you've probably done so far What does that mean? Um, going back to the going back to the Indiana Jones of football writing I introduced you as at the start so um, I don't get you as a sort of man writing about sort of billionaire football clubs I mean it was a great book but that's a sort of David Conn kind of book going and meeting the fans and getting entrenched in their system and their style and their way of life I see that more as a sort of a very sort of James Montague book if you sort of see the definition I'm trying to yeah, trying yeah. to get there I, I think so and I think going back to this I mean I, I mean I love the billionaire I'm very proud of it but it was you know it was, it was a bit of a departure yeah in, 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 some, in some respects it was some respects it wasn't I mean it is still a book about underdogs in a way and I think that's a common theme in my work is you know, outsiders, underdogs, um, you know, people who are kind of fighting against the system in certain respects. And so I don't maybe the next thing I write won't be a, won't, won't be about football at all or might not even be nonfiction. So I just, um, you know, I, I think I'm going to have to think about a different way of doing stuff because I just don't think I'm going to be able to embed myself in this in this world in the same way that I've been extremely lucky to, to have done in the past 15 years. Yeah. Adam, you got any final questions? No, that's great. Cool. I'm, I'm looking, I, I really like the yin and yang of we're talking about a book about sort of deep-seated ultraculturalism and then behind you there's a sort of baby's bottle <laughs> bringing you straight back down <laughs> to earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, right, that's brilliant. So the, the book is called um, 
one three one two among the ultras um a journey with the world's most extreme fans did you notice i got him to say that because i was about to say 13 12 because once you struggle i could see you thinking going, i know it's not this but it's what i'm gonna say yeah uh, and that's available from amazon and ebay and bookshops everywhere when they're open isn't it as are all your other books uh, foils um, uh, you can go to delayed gratifications website they've got some uh, cheap copies there that you can get delivered as well if they're not working and all your other books as well are all very very much highly recommended um, if people want to follow you on Twitter how do they do that uh, well, I, I made a mistake with my Twitter handle because I thought they wanted to know my full name so I now just have a Twitter handle that says James Piotra which is my middle name because I'm half Polish so it's uh, James P-I-O-T-R Cool. Okay. Uh, Adam, if they want to follow you, how do they do that? Uh, AdamSA101. Okay. Uh, we are part of the at Man on the Post uh, or Man on the Post Network. That's at Man on the Post on Twitter, on Facebook. You can like uh, Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. Um, there's been podcasts out this week about people choosing, as James did at the start, his favourite 11 players as long as they're uh, retired. That's the 11 pieces of me. I think there's a Championship Manager podcast coming out soon. Uh, plus um, anything else that's done over this weekend too. So, right. Adam, thank you very much. James, really, really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Enjoy the return of football. I mean, you might be a big Tajikistani or a Belarusian football fan, but yeah, enjoy the return this weekend. The Mike app has been keeping me going for the last few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and always remember to keep your man on the post. 